Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 32, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, The Sphinx. For 80 years after the Civil War, no Democrat won the White House except by fluke or accident of history. Grover Cleveland only won because he faced one of the most corrupt Republicans ever nominated and dissatisfied mugwumps had abandoned the GOP. Woodrow Wilson, he only won because in 1912, Teddy Roosevelt outright split the grand old party in two. And neither was re-elected by a majority of the popular vote either. They won their races because voters left the GOP, not because voters flocked to them. And then came FDR who won by a landslide, served a record 12 years, presided over the end of the Great Depression, nearly all of World War II, and restored the Democratic Party as a nationally popular force. By the time he left office, he had changed the country more than any other president save Lincoln. New regulations made the economy more stable, Social safety nets meant the unemployed and elderly wouldn't starve, and the American military, once feared and distrusted by its founding fathers, had become one of the strongest armed forces on earth. There's no way to get all of Roosevelt's legacy in one 60-minute podcast, so I'm going to focus on Roosevelt's rise to power, his New Deal legislation, and whether it helped shorten the Depression and what Roosevelt was like as a war leader through World War II. How much impact can one man, even a president, have on a conflict that spanned the globe? And how did he try to shape the peace he hoped would follow? And then I'm going to line up a slew of historian interviews to take deeper dives into other aspects of Roosevelt's life and presidency in the months that follow. Let's go. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born on January 30th, 1882, to his 26-year-old mother, Sarah Delano, and his 52-year-old father, James Roosevelt. Yeah, a bit of an age gap. The Roosevelts and Delanos were families of wealth, privilege, and connection. When Franklin was a child, he met President Grover Cleveland, who put a hand on Roosevelt's head and said, My little man, I am making a strange wish for you. It is that you may never be President of the United States. It's a story that might say more about Grover Cleveland than Franklin Roosevelt. As effectively the only child in the family, he had a much older half-brother, Roosevelt had the full attention of his doting mother and the full financial support of his uber-wealthy family. Franklin's parents sent him to the elite Groton Prep School, where tuition cost more than double the average American's income. And then he was off to Harvard. While there, two big things happened. His father died, leaving a vast fortune to Franklin and his mother, who, to be honest, Sarah was actually the wealthier parent already. And a year after that, Franklin's fifth cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, became president in 1901. Suddenly, the possibilities seemed limitless. Though Franklin would always belong to the opposite party of Theodore, he was a Democrat as opposed to Republican, he would often emulate his distant cousin's career. In 1907, while working as a law clerk, FDR told his colleagues that he planned to run for the state assembly, then be naval secretary, then New York governor, and then president. This is almost the exact same path his cousin Teddy took, 
minus running off to fight in Cuba and a few other Theodore misadventures. Almost as if to make the gap between himself and Theodore even smaller, on March 17, 1905, FDR married Theodore Roosevelt's niece, Eleanor, who was Franklin's fifth cousin once removed, as in, you would have to go back to the 18th century to find a common relative. But this right there, that made Teddy Franklin's uncle-in-law. Theodore was of course at the wedding, where he clapped Franklin on the back and joked, way to keep the name in the family. Roosevelt's first foray into politics came in 1910, when he ran for an upstate New York district that the Democrats hadn't won since 1856, that's before the Civil War. This was not an ideal district for an aspiring Democrat to start their career, but Roosevelt had two things in his favor. The GOP was in disarray due to disappointment with the Taft presidency, and Roosevelt owned a car. Yep, automobiles were still a novelty in 1910. So all Roosevelt had to do was roll into town in his 1910 Maxwell, nicknamed the Red Devil, and crowds would flock to see the car, and then they would hear Roosevelt's message by proxy. And get this, in 1910, when most road traffic was still by horse, horses had the right of way. So as Roosevelt zipped from town to town at an impressive 20 miles per hour, he would pull over to the side every time a horse-drawn cart came by and chat with the teamsters and passengers as they passed, impressing them with his humor and deference. When election day came, Franklin won the seat 15,700 votes to 14,600. His political career had begun. Over the next decade, Roosevelt's career played out exactly as he had planned. In 1911, he befriended New Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson. When Wilson was elected president a year later, he appointed Franklin Assistant Naval Secretary in 1913, the same position Theodore had held leading up to the Spanish-American War. But Franklin, he didn't get a war with Spain. He got a war with Germany. The United States entered World War I in 1917, and Franklin helped quadruple the Navy's size and organize convoys of troops and supplies across the Atlantic. Franklin also nearly saw his political career fall apart these years. In 1916, after giving birth to their sixth child, Eleanor said no more children, which, you know, fair enough. But in an era before the pill and reliable birth control, the only way they could really be sure of that was to become abstinent, which, oof. Two years later, during a 1918 trip home from Europe, steaming across the Atlantic, Franklin caught the Spanish flu, the great pandemic of that era. The disease made him so sick that he had to be taken to a hospital when he got home, so Eleanor had to unpack his luggage. And when she did, she discovered a bundle of love letters to a woman named Lucy. This prompted a crisis in their relationship, and they initially agreed to separate. But then FDR's chief political advisor, a guy named Louis Howe, a veteran journalist, he sat them down and said, let's get real for a moment. If you divorce, Franklin's political career is over. But if you stay together, Franklin could really become a somebody. And Eleanor, that's good for you. Because if Franklin becomes a somebody, you as his spouse will accrue political power too. You may not be in love with each other anymore, but why not stay together for the good of your careers and the good you can do the country? And they listened to him. FDR ended his affair with Lucy, but he would have others. 
And Eleanor would too. Their relationship basically became an open one where they respected and supported each other. I mean, Franklin, he even built Eleanor a private cottage for her to host friends at, and each was free to enjoy their romances on the side. It's very different from anything we've seen before, but, well, it worked for them. Anyway, diverse averted and influenza overcome, Franklin returned his focus to work and politics. As the war wound down and the 1920 presidential election approached, one of FDR's friends pitched him on the idea of pursuing the vice presidency. You know, the same position Uncle Teddy held in 1900. But get this, the friend didn't think FDR should run with just anybody. He thought FDR should saddle up as a running mate to the famous businessman, humanitarian, and former U.S. Food Administration director, Herbert Hoover, and win the White House as Hoover's wingman. Hoover thought about this when approached, but decided that he was a Republican instead and turned FDR down. But man, how is that for a what if? Hoover may have been out of the running, but FDR was still in it. And in 1920, he was picked as the running mate for Ohio Governor James Cox. But Roosevelt and Cox were pulled down by the anchor of an ailing, sequestered Woodrow Wilson, whose aimless administration was allowing the country to come apart at the seams. Roosevelt and Cox were crushed, and Roosevelt retreated to New York to regroup and rebuild. But then, something wholly unanticipated happened. Roosevelt caught polio. Polio is largely unheard of in the United States today. But it was terrifyingly common back then. Polio is a potentially life-threatening disease that attacks the brain and spinal cord and is contracted from contaminated water, something nobody knew at the time. In FDR's case, he likely contracted it at a 1921 Boy Scouts jamboree. Two weeks later, he felt an onset of chills, nausea, and pain in his lower back. The next morning, one of his legs felt weak. By nightfall, it was paralyzed. And then he lost feeling in his other leg. That's right, this is when FDR loses the ability to walk. It took weeks for doctors to diagnose him with polio and get him to a New York City hospital, and then another month for him to recover enough to be sent home. But he never did restore function to his legs. He was paralyzed from the waist down the rest of his life. And this had a huge impact. It didn't just teach him humility. It put him in touch with an entire class of less fortunate Americans he'd rarely spent time with before. For most of the 1920s, FDR's focus became Warm Springs, a retreat in Georgia built around, you guessed it, a warm spring that FDR bought after a visit lifted his spirits and, he thought, had a positive impact on his health. FDR turned Warm Springs into a polio retreat and care center for victims of all stripes. Nobody was ever turned away because they couldn't pay. A decade later, Roosevelt would build on what he'd started at Warm Springs and launch the March of Dimes, which encouraged Americans to contribute a dime toward research searching for a cure of polio. And wouldn't you know it? The program worked. In the 1950s, years after FDR's death, Spoiler alert, he's going to die. The March of Dimes would succeed in its mission by developing a vaccine for polio. And that vaccine is why today we aren't all terrified of catching polio. Yay, vaccines! But in 1922, 
sitting in his New York City hospital bed, half paralyzed with polio, that was all on the future. In that moment, Franklin and Eleanor feared Franklin's paralysis could be the end of his political career. But his old advisor, Louis Howe, came by and Howe knew that Roosevelt was too well-connected to be declared politically dead and too motivated to fail. Through great practice with braces concealed under his pants and the rehearsed assistance of others or the aid of crutches, Roosevelt learned to fake an illusion of walking, often to great political effect. In 1924, two years after being struck with polio, he got his shot to get back in the political game. Roosevelt was asked to give the nomination speech for New York governor and presidential hopeful Al Smith, an act that required Roosevelt walk across a stage to deliver a speech at a podium without assistance at the National Convention. Roosevelt, using hidden leg braces and visible crutches, propelled himself across the stage in an act that brought the convention to its feet and stamped FDR into memory. Al Smith did not win the nomination that year, but FDR won the respect of the Democratic Party. Then, in 1928, the party called to him for help. Everybody was expecting a GOP wave that year. And the New York Democratic Party was convinced that FDR was the only person who stood a chance to win the state's governorship. FDR knew it would be a tough race that could end his career if he lost. But when the party asked him to run, he didn't say no. Later, explaining to a friend, when you're in politics, you've got to play the game. And this is where, ironically, FDR's handicap became an asset. The GOP no one had to attack FDR for something, because, you know, political campaigns are always attacking their opponents, but it just couldn't see past his paralysis to attack him for anything else. And FDR was ready with an effective parry, saying, most people run for governor. I'm counting on my friends in the state to help me walk in. When one opposition journalist challenged FDR to undergo a medical exam to prove he was fit for office, FDR upped the ante, undergoing an exam from a panel of New York City doctors who reported that, aside from paralysis, he was in excellent health. Which was absolutely true. The guy exercised his upper body all the time. And then FDR invited that journalist to drop in on him unannounced whenever he liked to see how FDR looked in person. And when the journalist did, he was blown away by how much vitality FDR displayed on a regular basis. Bottom line, the attacks on FDR's health failed. They failed in 1928 when he ran for governor, and they would fail again in 1932 when he ran for president. And that might be why when he was really sick later in life, it wouldn't be a decisive factor. The GOP had cried wolf too often. Despite his good health, the 1928 election was a banner year for Republicans across the country, and FDR went to bed on election night thinking he had lost and his career was over. But if FDR had gone to bed early, his 74-year-old mother Sarah, she had stayed up late to follow the results. Well past midnight, Late-arriving ballots tipped the election FDR's way by the slimmest of margins, and old Sarah rushed to his home and bounded up the stairs to deliver the news. Roosevelt was sworn in as governor of New York on January 1st, 1929. Ten months later, the stock market collapsed, and the Great Depression began. Roosevelt's 
four years as governor were basically a science lab for some of the ideas he would make famous as president. It was as governor that FDR began giving fireside radio chats. It was as governor that FDR launched emergency relief and public works programs. Franklin was the only governor in the nation to organize extensive relief efforts during the Great Depression, a course of action that served him well in 1932 when he ran for president. Because, oh yeah, it's time to run for president. There was never much doubt that Franklin would be the Democratic Party's nominee. Few rivals wanted to risk their political careers on fixing the Great Depression. FDR led the Democratic Convention from first ballot to last. And he then made waves when he became the first presidential nominee to fly into the nominating convention. A risky endeavor back then. Planes were not safe to personally accept the party's nomination. It was the type of bold move that made FDR look energetic and healthy. In his acceptance speech, Franklin declared it was time for a new deal for the American people, and the American people agreed. FDR cruised to victory in the general election, winning 22.8 million to 15.8 million in the popular vote, and 472 to 59 in the Electoral College. Even better, his victory had coattails for the Democratic Party, which surged to a 310 to 117 majority in Congress and a 60 to 36 majority in the Senate. Franklin would assume power during the greatest economic disaster in U.S. history, but he would do so with the support he needed to fight it. And so, on March 4th, 1933, 51-year-old Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the fifth cousin of Theodore Roosevelt, a man who had learned compassion from polio and politics from the Empire State, became the first Democrat to win the White House with a majority of the popular vote in 80 years. But what did the world and the country look like when FDR became president? Let's look around. Internationally, the world was in the throes of the Great Depression. And in their despair, the people of the world were increasingly turning to authoritarian solutions. Fascism had come onto the scene when Benito Mussolini became Prime Minister of Italy back in 1922. But he was joined by Adolf Hitler in Germany in 1933 and Francisco Franco in Spain in 1936. In Asia, Japan's experiment with democracy collapsed into government by assassination, a chaotic period when a string of high-profile assassinations made sure the nation's civil leaders did whatever the military wanted or else. On the other end of the spectrum, an authoritarian version of socialism had taken hold of Russia with the rise of Stalin in the 1920s, jailing and disappearing any who might threaten his reign. Domestically, the United States was also being tempted by authoritarian solutions. Louisiana's Huey Long, the Kingfish, was growing his clout and power with a populist platform that called for capping annual incomes at $1 million, capping inheritance at $5 million, and capping an individual's personal fortune at $50 million. Long wanted the government to tax every dollar beyond those levels and use them to provide free higher education, 
free medical care to all Americans, pensions to the elderly, and more. He was very popular. But he also ruled as a veritable dictator in Louisiana, once declaring, I'm the Constitution around here. On the other end of the spectrum from Long was Father Coughlin, a populist Catholic priest who started his radio career to defend Catholicism from the KKK, but somehow got lost along the way and became famous for broadcasting to his radio audience of 40 million diatribes against Jews, capitalists, and socialists. That's right, this guy became a fascist. Some of Coughlin's supporters even acquired dynamite and machine guns to attempt a coup, the violent overthrow of the United States government, only for the FBI to break up the plot days before it was going to be executed. In the eyes of Roosevelt, Coughlin and Long were two of the most dangerous men in America. And so the stakes were high as Roosevelt became president. 1933 was rock bottom of the Great Depression, but nobody knew it had bottomed out yet. 15 million workers were unemployed, one out of every three. 45% of farm mortgages were delinquent and facing foreclosure. On a single day in April 1932, a quarter of the entire state of Mississippi was auctioned in foreclosure sales. Two million Americans were homeless, and in some states, 90% of inhabitants suffered malnutrition. If FDR could not find solutions to these problems, the United States could go the way of Russia or Germany in a hurry. As if to underscore the danger, a 32-year-old bricklayer attempted to assassinate Roosevelt a month before his inauguration, taking five shots at an open car carrying Roosevelt and killing the mayor of Chicago who stood outside the car instead. With the stakes so high, Franklin wasted no time getting to work. FDR went straight from his inauguration ceremony to a cabinet meeting focused on the banking crisis. Four thousand banks had failed in just the three months before he was sworn in. Nearly half the total number of banks that failed during the entire Great Depression. And Franklin took his first steps the following day. He declared a national banking holiday, which is less a holiday and more a mandatory closing of all the banks in the United States. FDR did this to halt the panicked withdrawals that were causing so many banks to fail and to buy himself time to roll out a plan. Five days later, he rolled out that plan. Congress passed a bank bill that gave the government authority to review the finances of every bank in the country. Banks would not be allowed to reopen until the federal government confirmed they were on solid enough footing to do so. But because even a healthy bank can be toppled by a run of depositors demanding their money, FDR couldn't stop there. He had to find a way to dissuade the public from running on the banks. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. With these words, FDR began the first of his famous fireside chats. In a country of 125 million people, 60 million, half, would regularly tune in for these presidential addresses. Roosevelt gave 30 in all, giving FDR a direct line of communication to the American people unlike anything previous presidents had enjoyed before. 
In his first address, FDR explained what had caused the recent bank panic, how banks worked, and why panicked withdrawals were just going to lead to more economic misery. And the crazy thing is, this actually worked. When banks began reopening on March 13th, deposits actually doubled withdrawals. A few months later, he put a bow on it by signing the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated commercial banks from investment banks and established federal deposit insurance, aka now. Your bank deposits really were safe, because if your bank failed and your money all disappeared from that bank, the federal government would reimburse you for up to 5000 lost dollars, a value that covered more than 95% of all personal bank accounts in 1932. Federal action and one radio chat had been enough to restore public trust in the banks and save the banking sector. I should also mention the banking bill gave FDR the authority to deflate the value of the dollar in relation to gold. If you listened to the Hoover episode, you may remember that one of the big blows to the American economy came when England did this with the British pound. And you may be wondering, is this a good idea? Well, England did it because it may have been bad for the U.S., but it was very good for England, and now the U.S. was following suit. Why was this a good idea? Because when a nation deflates the value of its currency, it makes the nation's goods cheaper for the rest of the world to buy. And when your goods are cheaper for the rest of the world to buy, that will drive up demand for your now cheaper goods. And when demand goes up, you need to increase production to meet it. And that means hiring more workers. So by deflating the value of the dollar, FDR was ensuring more American workers would find jobs. But there's actually a, a kind of funny story about how he went about deflating the dollar. Every day, the White House would put out a report on how many dollars it now cost to buy an ounce of gold. Uh, maybe $21 one day, and then $21.07 the next day, and then $21.30 the day after that. And everybody assumed there must have been some very smart science and calculus going into this. But in truth, it was just FDR and a couple advisors sitting around a desk saying, you know, seven's my lucky number. It's going to be $21.07 today. Or my niece was born on the 27th. Let's make it $21.27 today. It was entirely arbitrary. They knew they wanted to end at $35 per ounce of gold, and they just kept picking random numbers each day and moving it that direction till they got there. Wild. Deflating the currency also allowed FDR to print a lot more money, which really helped the government pay for all the expensive programs it was about to spin up. Because the success of the banking bill didn't mean the Great Depression was over. Not by a long shot. And FDR knew it, so he didn't slow down. During his first 100 days in office, he passed 77 laws aimed at ending the Great Depression and easing American suffering. 77 laws! And a lot of these are big, major laws. Things that could carry an entire episode for most of our previous administrations. Getting into everything FDR did would run the risk of causing your eyes to glaze over and roll back into your head. So instead of reciting a long list of laws and statistics, I'm going to focus on three big ones. The AAA, the CCC, and the CWA. The AAA was the Agricultural Adjustment Act. 
It gave the government the power to decide how much food should be produced and to pay farmers to not produce any food beyond that amount. This was huge. Think about it. For all American history, prior to this point, if you were a farmer and the price of your crops dropped in the market, you would have to grow and sell more crops to make up that difference. But if all the nation's farmers did that at once, it would just crater the value of that crop even lower and cause an economic recession. The AAA coming in and paying farmers money to not grow more crops guaranteed a steady price for farmed goods, giving farmers protection from recessions that they had never had before. So that's the AAA. Up next, the CCC. The CCC is the Civilian Conservation Corps. This is a fun one. It put unemployed young adults to work planting trees, building bridges, digging reservoirs, and performing other works of public service outdoor. Workers were paid $30 a month, with 25 of those dollars being sent to their families back home. But the impact was really beyond that because the CCC, it also fed and housed these workers, taking that burden off their families' shoulders. Three million young men worked for the CCC over the following eight years. Next up, the CWA. The Civil Works Administration was born of a single question FDR asked an advisor his first winter in office. Can you find temporary jobs for four million unemployed Americans? The advisor said, if you give me enough money, yeah. And the CWA was born. The CWA, along with two similar work programs, the WPA and the PWA, yes, it's confusing, would employ more than 10 million Americans and build or upgrade over a billion miles of road, 46,000 schools, 1,000 airports, and pump more than $12 billion into the economy. These workers built such famous sites as the Riverwalk in San Antonio and the Timberline Lodge on Oregon's Mount Hood, which you may know as the lodge from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. At least the exterior shots. To make sure all these bills got passed, FDR told his Democratic majorities in Congress that he would not fill any of the 100,000 patronage positions in the federal government until after Congress had passed all of the first 100 days legislation he wanted. You could bet he'd be keeping a list and checking it twice to make sure you voted the Roosevelt way before he appointed any of your nominees to patronage positions. But again, the end of the first 100 days was not the end of the New Deal. Roosevelt's pace slowed down, but he kept adding new agencies in the years that followed. In 1935, Roosevelt signed Social Security into law, guaranteeing pensions so the old would be cared for. His Secretary of Labor, Frances Perkins, the first woman to serve in the cabinet, and a graduate of my wife's alma mater Mount Holyoke, and the namesake of the protagonist in Dirty Dancing, that's right, baby is named for FDR's Secretary of Labor, led the committee that designed Social Security. FDR signed the final major piece of New Deal legislation in 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act, a law that banned child labor, set a 40-hour work week, established the first minimum wage, and mandated workers be paid time and a half for overtime. Pretty good stuff. Compared to FDR, 
the actions of prior progressive administrations like his uncle-in-law, Theodore Roosevelt, or his old mentor, Woodrow Wilson, were drops in the bucket. A new compact had been established between the people and their government. The public's well-being was now the government's responsibility. These programs would be expanded in the years ahead. Medicare and Medicaid would come down the road, and more professions would be eligible for Social Security. But it was the start of a new era of American government. Faced with a crisis like the Great Depression, democratic governments around the world had to adapt or die. And Germany, Japan, Spain, and elsewhere, they died. In the United States, government evolved. And it wasn't just at the legislative level. FDR brought compassion to the government. Remember the Bonus Army from Hoover's episode? The desperate World War I veterans who had come to Washington during the Depression to ask for an early payout of their World War I bonus policies, only for the Army to attack and send them fleeing when they came back to Washington after FDR's inauguration? FDR ordered they be fed, sheltered, provided dental care, and medical services and had the Navy band provide entertainment for them. Eleanor even came out to the camps to visit, tell stories, and sing with them for the day. In the words of one veteran, Hoover sent the army, Roosevelt sent his wife. As FDR put it, If, as our Constitution tells us, our federal government was established, among other things, to promote the general welfare, it is our plain duty to provide for that security upon which the welfare depends. And the thing is, the success of the New Deal really may have saved American democracy. As the economy stabilized, fewer Americans turned to Father Coughlin and Huey Long for answers. Long was ultimately murdered in 1935 when the son-in-law of a judge that he was trying to force from office shot and killed him. And Coughlin... He was forced off the air in 1939 after he urged his listeners to support fascist Germany and Italy during the early months of World War II in Europe, ending his influence for good. When the 1936 election came up, FDR was confident of victory. The Depression wasn't over, but his programs had helped cut unemployment by a third and driven a 50% rise in wages. He had so much political power going into the convention that he was able to overturn the 104-year-old rule, mandating that Democratic candidates get a two-thirds majority of delegates to be nominated. And this is actually a very big deal. As long as a Democratic candidate needed two-thirds of the delegates to be nominated, they were never going to get nominated without the South. And the South was never going to nominate a candidate who was progressive on race. This rule change freed the Democratic Party from Southern control and made possible its future transformation into the party of civil rights. FDR cruised to victory in the general election, winning the popular vote 27.7 million to 16.7 million, and the Electoral College 523 to 8 the largest majority since Monroe ran unopposed in 1820. And then, Franklin got a bit overconfident. The thing is, Roosevelt may have passed nearly 100 pieces of New Deal legislation, but six New Deal laws had been struck down by the Supreme Court. And those six, they really stuck in his craw. 
It wasn't lost on Roosevelt that seven of the nine justices on the court had been appointed by conservative Republicans. He had been twice elected by popular acclaim to enact the legislation he was advocating for. Who had elected these justices to block him? FDR decided that court reform was the only answer. In 1937, Roosevelt launched a campaign against the court, coming out in favor of legislation that would effectively cap the age of Supreme Court justices and allow him to add friendlier justices to the court. He thought this was safe territory. The court size had changed before, but he had misread the public badly. His opponents had been given a popular issue to rally around, and rally around it they did. Roosevelt's proposal was defeated, and when Roosevelt tried to support primary opponents against 10 Democrats who had voted against him, nine of his 10 candidates lost, making Roosevelt appear a lame duck heading into the 1940 election. And the thing is, this whole effort probably wasn't necessary. Sure, the court had overthrown six of his 100 New Deal laws, but the laws it overturned were from his earliest days, and they really had been poorly written in haste. His later laws stood the court's test, and retirees on the court soon opened spots for him to fill the old-fashioned way. This was likely his biggest political mistake as president. As a result, when FDR ran for a third term in 1940, the only president to seek a third term other than Grant in 1880 and his uncle-in-law Theodore in 1912, it was a closer thing than his first two contests, but he still won 27 to 22 million in the popular vote and 449 to 82 in the Electoral College. And then his focus turned from the economy to the world war that was spreading from Europe and Asia. Franklin Roosevelt had been mostly quiet on the international stage during the first six years of his presidency. Even as Germany occupied Austria, as Italy invaded Ethiopia, and as Japan invaded further and further into China, Roosevelt and the United States were largely silent. And when he did speak up against Japanese aggression in China, he had to backpedal because the American public just had no interest in it. World War I had disillusioned the United States people of a romanticism for war. The American people were isolationists. But as the 30s ground on, their president increasingly wasn't. Want to know how isolationist Americans were? In 1937, Japanese planes attacked and sank an American gunboat that was defending American business interests in China. And the response of the public wasn't to be mad at Japan. It was the desire to pull out of China. Then, in 1938, the nation debated a constitutional amendment that would have taken away Congress's authority to declare war and required a national referendum instead, as in, every single American votes. This would have made it a lot harder to declare war. FDR vigorously opposed the amendment and narrowly won, 209 to 188. Imagine if it had passed. And so, held back by an isolationist public, FDR had to get creative when, in 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland to open World War II in Europe and then overran France in less than two months the following year, leaving Britain standing alone against Nazi-occupied Western Europe. And because when it rains, it pours, 
Imperial Japan scooped up the Pacific possessions of nations conquered by Germany in 1940 as well. FDR sensed it would be bad business for the United States if fascist Germany and Imperial Japan conquered the rest of the world unchecked, but he couldn't yet oppose them with military force. So he looked for other ways to get involved. First, he had the United States sell military supplies to Great Britain, a move that would both bolster the Brits and help the American war economy get into gear. But after winning re-election in 1940, he was told the Brits would be broke within a month if the Americans continued to insist on payments in cash. So FDR came up with another scheme to keep the arms flowing, a lend-lease program. Basically, England could borrow all the war material it needed for the duration of the war, and it would then return the stuff after the war ended. We are literally lending them tanks, planes, and ships, and in return, they would lease us some of the overseas bases that, frankly, they could ill afford to garrison their troops at anymore in return. This plan helped keep the Brits in the war long enough for Hitler to get distracted and, in one of the great strategic blunders of the 20th century, launch a surprise invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. In the spirit of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Americans extended Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union to help them survive the German onslaught as well and eventually turn the tide of the war in the East. Okay, so that's what FDR cooked up to help contain Nazi Germany. What about Imperial Japan? On July 26, 1941, FDR announced a freeze of Japanese assets in the United States as punishment for Japan's brutal invasion of China where Japanese atrocities were killing millions of civilians. This freeze was not supposed to include a freeze on oil sales to Japan. But while FDR was out of country meeting with Churchill, his assistant secretary of state, Dean Acheson, went kind of rogue and froze all oil sales on his own accord. FDR didn't even find out for more than a month. And when he did, he felt he couldn't unfreeze the oil or he would appear to be appeasing Japan. And this basically lit the fuse to Pearl Harbor. With American oil off the table, Japan's leaders looked around and made a quick calculation. At that moment, they had a two-year supply of oil and a larger army and navy than the Americans. But it was an advantage that would not last. The Americans were rearming, building new ships, tanks, and planes. And Japan's advantage was getting smaller and smaller with every month that passed. In a couple of years the Americans would likely pull ahead. The time to attack was now. And attack they did. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Pearl Harbor wasn't the only place Japan struck on that fateful December day. In the span of seven hours, carefully coordinated attacks hit the Americans in the Philippines, Guam, Wake Island, and Midway, and hit the British Empire in Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. In the following weeks, New Britain, the Gilbert Islands, the Solomon Islands, and Burma all fell. 
Japan had landed a hell of a first punch, but even they knew it wouldn't win the war. Isoroko Yamamoto, the Japanese commander who had designed the offensive, had urged against it and told his superiors, If I am told to fight regardless of the circumstance, I shall run wild for the first six months or a year, but I have utterly no confidence for the second or third years. Japan's whole strategy was to grab as much territory as it could, fortify it, and then kill as many Americans as possible defending it. And this next part is kind of wild. Japan was partially inspired in the strategy by the fact that American women had won the right to vote. Japan's male leaders thought American women would grow so upset seeing their sons and husbands dying in faraway places that they would force the government to settle for peace before the war was decided. Obviously, this was a miscalculation. 33 minutes after Roosevelt declared his Day of Infamy speech, Congress declared war on Imperial Japan, 388 to 1. Three days later, Nazi Germany, fed up with American support of Great Britain and the Soviet Union, committed another great blunder by declaring war on the United States, and Congress declared war in return. As the war officially got underway for the Americans, FDR largely stayed out of the way and only engaged in the very highest levels of strategy. He picked his commanders at the war's start and showed no hesitancy, reaching down the ranks to promote men of extraordinary talent in this time of extraordinary need. Men like George Marshall, Dwight Eisenhower, Chester Nimitz, and Ernest King. Unlike Lincoln, who had to go through six commanders of the Union Army before finding his man in Grant, FDR, who may have been familiar with some of these men from his extensive time in the Navy Department in Washington, D.C., found his commanders early and stuck with them throughout the war. At the highest level, FDR and Churchill agreed on a Germany-first strategy, which would be a little politically tricky. All those American boys enlisting for the war thought that they were going to go avenge Pearl Harbor and the Pacific, not re-fight World War I in Europe. But FDR used his knack for messaging to get the public on board. Unlike World War I, which really could have gone either way until the final few months, World War II was basically decided in 1942. From the start of the war until 1942, the Axis powers won just about every major engagement they fought. But then, the Battle of Midway in the Pacific between the U.S. and Japanese navies, and the Battle of Stalingrad in Russia between the Soviet and German armies, both went the Allies' way. And the Allied powers basically won every major battle the rest of the war. In Europe, the Americans and Brits would go on to liberate Africa, then Italy, then France, D-Day, and then Germany over the following three years. All while the Soviet Union frankly did the bulk of the fighting and closed in on Germany from the east. In the Pacific, the U.S. Army closed in on Japan from the south, while the American Navy skipped most of Japan's fortified islands and began striking the mainland from the east. Nobody realized it in 1942, but after Midway and Stalingrad, it was a question of when, not if, the Allied powers would reign victorious. Fresh off these victories in early 1943, 
Roosevelt met Churchill in the recently liberated North African city of Casablanca to discuss the conditions under which the war would end. Roosevelt and Churchill were both aware that the third ally, Stalin, who couldn't attend the conference due to conditions in Russia, was distrustful of them. Stalin feared that FDR and Churchill would sign a separate peace with Hitler and abandon Stalin to fight Hitler alone. And FDR and Churchill feared Stalin would sign a separate peace with Hitler and abandon them to fight Hitler alone. To create more mutual trust on both sides, Roosevelt announced the war would only end with unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. This pledge did the trick and kept the Soviets committed to the war. By the end of 1943, Italy had been captured and Germany and Japan were being steadily pushed back. The biggest question before FDR increasingly became, what would the post-war world look like? On December 1st, 1943, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin met in Tehran to discuss that very topic. Roosevelt raised the idea of a post-war United Nations, inspired by his old mentor, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations, and he won Stalin and Churchill's support for the idea. The three also agreed to a post-war division of Germany, though exactly how it would be divided was left for future discussion. But post-war considerations extended to the home front as well, and on that front, FDR signed the GI Bill on June 22, 1944. Remember how veterans of every previous war had gotten a raw deal from their service and had petitioned the government for support in the years after they served? Yeah, this brilliant bill was the end of that. Veterans were provided funding to pursue four-year college or vocational degrees, low-cost loans for homes and farms, job counseling, unemployment insurance, and medical care. The bill transformed higher education in the United States by making it accessible to millions of veterans, turning them into a new middle class, and setting the stage for sustained American prosperity, frankly, from World War II right up to today. In early 1945, with the war nearly over, FDR met Churchill and Stalin again, this time in Yalta. This is the conference that is most controversial and consequential. Each leader wanted something. FDR wanted Stalin to enter the war with Japan. Churchill, eyeing Stalin warily, wanted a commitment of free elections for liberated countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And Stalin wanted a guaranteed sphere of Soviet political influence in Central and Eastern Europe, something that would both guarantee Russian security and enhance Soviet power. In the end, everyone got what they wanted, kind of. <laughs> Stalin pledged to declare war on Japan within three months. The Western allies said he could have his sphere of influence in Central and Eastern Europe, including Poland, and Stalin said he would allow free elections there. But Stalin knew two things. Words are cheap, and possession is nine-tenths of the law. Anywhere his soldiers went, they were not going to leave. Roosevelt soon came to realize he'd been mistaken in trusting Stalin, but he may have thought he had time to sort that out. He was wrong. The thing is, Roosevelt's health had been in decline for more than a year. The signs of congestive heart failure had been there since 1944, when a doctor who saw him came away convinced he wouldn't last another year. But nobody told this to FDR, 
who ran for and won re-election at a time when all his doctors knew he could not survive another term. Allies who saw him at Yalta came away thinking they'd seen a dead man walking. On April 12, 1945, during a visit to the polio retreat he had established at Warm Springs, Georgia, FDR suffered a pain in his head and collapsed while sitting for a portrait. He was declared dead less than two hours later. Opposition Senator Robert Taft, son of the former president and chief justice, summed it up. He dies a hero of the war, for he literally worked himself to death in the service of the American people. Okay, so, how had the nation and the world changed during the 12 years of the FDR administration? Quite a lot. On the home front, the New Deal had introduced transformative change to the American economy. Here's a short list of things we take for granted now that didn't exist before FDR. Social Security, unemployment insurance, stock market regulation, a federal guarantee of bank deposits, wages and hours legislation, labor's right to bargain collectively, agricultural price support, rural electrification. Oh, and he repealed prohibition. That's a lot. Outside of Lincoln's abolition to slavery, I can't think of any other president who comes close to so transforming the way Americans live. He did also unjustly incarcerate 120,000 Japanese Americans, something I really hope to get into during a future historian interview episode. But this isn't the only way the United States changed. We'll get more into this when we get to Truman, but the United States was now a global power. Isolationists were still out there, but they would never be the dominant force in American politics again. And as Spider-Man could have told us, that great power would come with great responsibility for future American presidents. Aside from all this big picture stuff, you also saw a lot of motion picture stuff. Movies were beginning to come into their own in classics like King Kong, Snow White, Wizard of Oz, and Casablanca were released during Roosevelt's presidency. Superman made his first comic books appearance in 1938, followed by Batman in 1939 and Captain America in 1941. On the engineering front, the Hoover Dam was complete in 1936. Internationally, well... World War II was in its closing months when FDR died, and that is obviously going to redraw a lot of international borders. But in other international news, J.R.R. Tolkien published The Hobbit in 1937, and former German Emperor Wilhelm II, the guy who's kind of most responsible for World War I, he died in 1941. His final years were filled with delight, watching Germany conquer half of Europe, from his place of exile in Holland. If you're going to remember three things from FDR, I recommend, first, he transformed the Democratic Party from a regional party to a national party. From this moment forth, Democrats had a new identity as progressive champions of minorities, farmers, laborers, pretty much everyone but the rich. It was a game changer in American politics. Two, FDR helped get the country out of the Great Depression and transformed the relationship between the government and the public with a New Deal program of economic reform. And three, 
FDR led the United States to victory in World War II by showing confidence and trusting his ability to appoint talented military commanders and then getting out of their way as they won the war. So, what can we learn from FDR? I think the answer is great leaders delegate and get out of the way. Notice how this episode never got into the nitty-gritty of military operations during World War II? Or the sausage-making of the legislative process? That's because FDR picked brilliant men and women, trusted them with power, pointed them in a general direction, and let them do their thing. The biggest blow-up of his entire presidency was the one time he got too personally involved, the Supreme Court fight. Leaders trust their subordinates and delegate responsibility, not just to empower those around them, but to free up their own bandwidth so they can get more done. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, pester them to listen until they're ready to discuss their favorite New Deal legislation, and then leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash history. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music was Happy Days Are Here Again by Ben Selvin and the Crooners. Audio recordings are from the Library of Congress and the FDR Presidential Library. The primary biography for today's episode was FDR by Gene Edward Smith. In our next episode, did the New Deal really end the Great Depression? I'll speak to one of the nation's preeminent scholars of the New Deal, Eric Rouchway, about the program's impact, legacy, and whether the numbers showed it actually worked. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.